Welcome to The Wave Strength. Innovative pension solutions for a secure retirement. Presented by Pacific Life. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today on another exciting episode of The Wave Strength. I'm your host, Jim Breen, and with us today are two important guests. We're going to have a real great conversation, but first, let's go over the title. The Alternate Universe, Non-Qualified versus Qualified Plans. Well, let's get right into it, folks. Uh, our guests today are Marty Menon and Pete Newworth. Now, Marty and Pete, welcome to the show. Uh, Marty, you've been with Pacific Life for some time, and uh, let's, let's hear a little bit about your background. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, you know, prior to joining Pacific Life, I actually worked on non-qualified plans quite a bit and uh, enjoyed the alternate universe, as you described it. And we had a great, uh, great conversation earlier with Pete and uh, decided, hey, Pete, let's get together and record a podcast about this topic and have some fun. Awesome. Well, well, wonderful. We're happy to have you. And now our, our special guest today, Pete Newworth. Pete, thank you for joining us uh, on this episode of The Wave Strength. Uh, Pete, maybe help our listeners understand a little bit more about you and your background. Oh, thanks a lot, Jim. And, and I'm, I'm very uh, honored to be here and uh, with, with both you, both you, Jim and, and Marty. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've been an actuary for oh, over 40 years. I actually started my career in 1979 uh, with a life insurance company, not Pack Life, um, and uh, bought my first uh, life insurance policy when I was 23 years old and have been a student of the industry ever since. So, and, and since that time, I've been mostly working in the retirement uh, space and and worked for a number of uh, uh, consulting firms um, in uh, consulting on qualified retirement plans. Okay. And then um, back in 1996, I joined a uh, had a was had a boutique actuarial consulting firm, mm -hmm. and then we were acquired by a uh, a firm that specialized in non qualified retirement plans. And ever since then. I've, that's been my focus. So um, I've been in the non-qualified world for, I guess, uh, over 20 years and wow. um, got an opportunity to meet Marty and the other folks at Pack Life, um, oh, probably 10 or 10 or 12 years ago, where, uh, because Pack Life has been very, very active in financing non-qualified retirement plans and um, has some of the best products out there to do that. And so, um, like I said, when you asked me to, to join this podcast, I was just thrilled because I um, love talking to you guys and love talking thanks, about non-qualified retirement plans and how to finance them. Well, thanks, Pete. And, and, and you obviously, listening to your background, you have a lot of history uh, and uh, you, know, you know what you're talking about. In fact, if I understand correctly, you, you are an author as well. You're, uh, you have a book out. Yeah, I do, actually. It's called mm -hmm. um, Money Mountaineering, and it's all about how to survive in the wilderness, complex, noisy, uncertain wilderness that is our world of money these days. And one of the, uh, one of the think tools that I suggest you keep in your backpack is a, a life insurance policy, because oh, okay. I, I find that uh, life insurance is, is a very useful product for individuals as well as corporations, which I guess is what we're going to be talking about today, is how corporations you know, use insurance and annuity products to, um, to finance their non-qualified retirement plans. 
Wonderful. Well, th- thanks for that background. I l- actually, I really enjoyed the, the title of that book. Uh, I, I understand you're you're from uh, uh, Central California or north of uh, San Francisco. I was actually up in that area, you know, um, in the in the woods, uh, you know, doing some uh, regular mountaineering uh, a couple a couple weeks ago. But uh, yeah, it's so beautiful up there. Um, really, yeah. really is lovely up there. So let's jump into our topic today. And what I'd like to do is really break it down for our listeners and start from the beginning. So what are non-qualified plans? Okay, so, you know, what's the difference between qualified versus non-qualified? And, um, you know, I I would direct maybe, Marty, you can maybe kick it off and then kick it to Pete if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Jim, you know, in, in the world of the Internal Revenue Code, there are a lot of rules. Yeah. And, and those rules determine and begin to separate the difference between qualified and non-qualified plans. Okay. Uh, some of the audience may know that there are limits to how much a person can defer, for example, into a 401k plan. And okay. those limits affect highly compensated employees. And thus, companies offer kind of an extra 401k plan, if you will or a deferred compensation plan. And it allows those highly compensated employees to defer, let's say 10% of their income. Because of those limits, they may not be able to put 10% of their income into the 401k plan. So these non-qualified plans give them the opportunity to defer their desired amount of retirement income for later in life. Pete, what do you th- there's other ways well, to I, describe I, it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. In fact, um, you know, it's it's um, it's I think it's not only fair but appropriate that um, executives get the opportunity to save the same amount of their their compensation as the rank and file uh, employees. Although because of the IRS limits, they're really not allowed to do that through a qualified plan, and they have to sort of do it in a in a notional way as opposed to a you know delivering money directly into a uh, qualified trust um, the other thing though is that um, traditional pension plans um, you know the the normal you know i I work for thirty years and I get fifty percent of my my final pay as a as a lifetime annuity that's what used to be the the bulk of what retirement plans were. And um, those two are qualified plans generally, and they have limits. So the, the IRS limits the amount of benefits that can be paid out of a qualified defined benefit pension plan. Okay. And again, that's sort of also not fair. And that, you know, for it, that, that's why company, many companies, if not most companies who have these plans, um, set up a non-qualified defined benefits supplemental retirement plan to provide their executives with the same, to make up for what the qualified plan could not provide as a pension. And both of those types of non-qualified plans are, you know, they used to be pretty minor numbers for many companies, but as um you know the world has has evolved and and the limits have stayed pretty much where they were while inflation and other factors that increase compensation have raised many um, employees and executives compensation above those limits 
there has been a need, an increased need for non-qualified retirement plans. And these plans are now pretty big financial obligations on the balance sheet of many, many companies. And hence, um, the involvement of, of people like me consulting and, and people like Marty providing um, insurance solutions to uh, finance those programs. So, so almost... Well, I was going to say, Marty, it's almost like this alternate universe where <laughs> the the highly compensated employees can still get get the benefits. I, I keep thinking back to some of the old comic books, you know, the bizarro world. Like it's, it's just an alternate universe, right? It it is, and, and it's funny because Pete nailed it when he said that there are also limits that affect defined benefit plans. And I'll I'll recall, and Pete, you'll recall this because I was telling Jim the story during the Clinton administration when they lowered the 401A17 limit. And, and by 401A17 to the audience, I'm referring to a section of the Internal Revenue Code. But I recall, and I think it was like 1996, somewhere around there, that the Clinton administration lowered that limit from 235000 down to 150. I think it was, if I've got my numbers right. And boy, that's amazing <laughs> that I even remember those numbers. But but that, it, it, kind of to your point, Pete, that really all of a sudden created an enormous call from companies and their highly compensated employees to say, hey, whoa, time out. All of a sudden, my benefits are getting significantly reduced. And the benefits that I would have received out of the qualified plan and, and obviously the idea was, and at least I tried to explain this to Jim, was to take the pressure, the financial pressure off of corporate America so that what was a major underfunding, a pension problem back then, which unfortunately has come back again and again and again, but that was the purpose of the Clinton administration lowering that limit and causing these uh, non-qualified plans to become even more prevalent. Well, that's exactly right, Marty. In fact... I mean, right around that time frame is exactly when, you know, our firm, the, the little little consulting firm that I was a part of, uh, was purchased by a firm uh, specializing in that. And that was exactly why they, they bought us, because there were so many, I mean, we were basically doing defined benefit qualified actuarial work, uh, you know, for, for medium-sized companies. And uh, the firm that bought us was in the non-qualified space, and they were suddenly realizing that many, many of their clients had much bigger defined benefit um, SERP. And we keep, you know, we talk about non-qualified retirement uh, defined benefit plans as SERPs. So they suddenly had a lot more SERP liabilities, and their and their clients were very concerned. And so this company needed some actuaries to look at those because you really do need an actuary to evaluate the liabilities associated with a defined benefit plan, whether it's qualified or non-qualified. And so they looked at us and said, you know, can you help us value and, you know, evaluate the financing alternatives for this, you know, kind of raft of, of defined benefit SERPs that they suddenly had. And so that's how I got into the you know, became, you know, much more involved in non-qualified financing. So um, you're absolutely right, Marty. And and that, you know, it's not like um, the IRS has been, uh, you know, rushing to increase the limits to allow executives to defer much, much more of their, their compensation. Right. Um, you know, the, the 
kind of the legis you know, the IRS or, you know, the Congress in general has been relatively, um, you know, I wouldn't say unfriendly, but, but vigilant about how much um, tax benefits are provided uh, to executives and corporations to shelter the benefit, the compensation that they pay the executives. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a tough business because, you know, companies do have to pay for these benefits and they have really two choices. I mean, they could sort of leave them unfunded and just pay the benefits when due, pay out this, these um, kind of phantom or notional uh, 401k balances or these executive deferred comp balances when they become due many, many years from now and continue to pay these SERP benefits as these executives retire. But that's, um, that's not a prudent financial choice for most companies and not a choice that many executives like because for an executive who is now retiring to have to rely on the, on the goodwill or, the, or you know, an agreement uh, by the company to pay um, you know, future benefits all the way into a old age for these executives who now are, you know, retired down to, you know, wherever is just not a, not a healthy situation. And that's why companies have come to, uh, you know, people like me, people like Marty to say, is there anything we can do to set aside money today so that there's money available um, to pay these executive benefits when they become due. Okay, okay so Pete, this is great. Now, moving on here. So I, I understand that, you know, for the qualified plans, companies are required, you know, to set aside the assets. But then for those non-qual plans, those non-qualified plans, if I understand, c companies are not required to set aside any assets to finance the liabilities, correct? That's right. That's right. It, it, they are, in fact... Um, you know, if you if you if a company were to actually put us put money, you know, locked up in trust in the same secure way that they do for the qualified plan, the executive would be taxed immediately because mm -hmm. there are there are rules around substantial risk of forfeiture and constructive receipt yep. that would, um, you know, provide the executive with a big tax bill, even though they haven't yet received those benefits. So that's also not fair. So it's trying, you know, companies have been working to try to kind of thread the needle between mm -hmm. setting aside money so that they are being prudent in advance funding these exec, these obligations to their executives, mm -hmm. uh, who, by the way, are, are critical uh, employees. They are the people who actually will determine whether this, whether the company survives and thrives in the future. So they are very important people to take care of. And, um, and they, again, and, the, and, and they put, and, and, and give us some examples then, you know, what can be done to secure those benefits? I, I there have to, I, and I, and, you know, I know you know the answer. I know we all know the answer, but there, there are some interesting uh, titled trusts that can be uh, sure. presented, right? Sure. Well, you know, you can, you can just set up a bank account okay. um, and you can, you can put, put money aside uh, and and keep track of that, and then tell everyone you're setting that setting that money aside. But on the other hand, the problem with that is that the company might change their mind. I mean, if it's not legally segregated in any way, then um, doesn't give the 
the, the executive much comfort that that money will be there. And what if the company is acquired and the new company doesn't want to say, why are we, why are we paying? Why do we have to pay these, these former executives of a company that they're not, that a company that we just bought. And so, um, there have been developed a number of vehicles to do this. And the most prevalent one is called a rabbi trust, which is a trust that is set up and it is, it's, um, so the money goes into trust and, and the terms of the trust say the, the funds in here can only be used to pay non-qualified benefits when they become due. Although if the company becomes bankrupt, um, those money, those monies are available to pay the obligations of the company. So now, so now it, Pete, to, to interrupt real quickly. So yeah. uh, Marty and I had a great conversation about this at one point. So for the for those listeners who may not know what a rabbi trust is, there's an interesting history behind the name of that trust. Marty, can you can you give us some some? Uh, yeah, background? I mean, just quite simply, it was first the first one that was approved by the IRS because this was a new concept at the time. You know, decades ago, was set up for a rabbi. But Temple literally wrote a letter to the IRS, you know, private letter ruling kind of thing and said, hey, we'd like to do this. We want, as Pete was describing, we want to set aside some assets so that we could pay our rabbi when he retires. And it became known, believe it or not, as crazy as it sounds, it became known as a rabbi trust. So, and it's stuck. So uh, it's kind of fun, you know, these days uh, to call, you know, these trusts a, a rabbi trust. And uh, every now and then, you know, someone always, you know, ask, Rabbi, why is it called a rabbi trust? And it's simply because the first one was set up for a rabbi. How about that? Interesting story. Yeah, good history. And when you do set aside money in a rabbi trust, and this is the difference between them, that and a uh, qualified plan trust, any investment return that is is, um, received or earned on the assets are, is taxable and it's taxable to the corporation. So it's, it's not a very financially efficient way to, um, to finance these executive benefits. You, you would set aside money and then you have to get, and if you do really well with the money, you have to pay corporate taxes. So the, the challenge for uh, corporate sponsors of these plans is how do we set aside money and minimize the tax hit because it's really again not fair for because a qualified trust doesn't have to get the investment return does not have to get taxed but it but it but the investment return on on rabbi trust assets does and so that's where folks like um, Marty and Pack Life come in and maybe Marty you want to talk a little bit about what what kind of solutions. Um, the insurance industry has has arrived at. Yeah, not not to confuse it anymore, but we'll throw another acronym out at our audience here. COLI, C-O-L-I, corporate owned life insurance is what Pete's referring to, which has become over you know the last three decades, four decades or so, the de facto financing vehicle. And like any insurance product, uh, more or less, I, I, I don't mean to generalize too much here, but the wonderful thing is, is, and to Peach point, is that the gains on investment inside of a life insurance policy owned by a corporation, thus corporate-owned life insurance or COLE, 
those investment gains are not immediately taxable. And Pete, if held until the death of the insured key person, if you will, because this often falls under the rules for key person life insurance, those death benefits are paid back to the owning corporation, ultimately tax-free. So it That's becomes right. a very efficient vehicle to use. And, and Pete, you and I have talked, and it's more common in the defined contribution space, really, right. than the defined benefit space. And, and why is that, Pete? Why, why would well, that happen? You know, it's, um, well, the, the, the basic a answer is that in a defined contribution, non-qualified defined contribution plan, um, because it is um, the, the account balances, if you will, of those, of those, those plans are, are built up because the executive has deferred their own money, there is a very strong uh, desire on the part of the executive as well as the corporation to actually set aside assets in, in a rabbi trust to backstop those account balances. And not only that, but the investment return that an executive gets by on you know, or is, is become is due because they, they will not only get the amounts that they've deferred, but any earnings um, on those uh, notional accounts that build up um, as a result of the kind of investments or notional investments that the, that the executive elects to, uh, to have those accounts denominated in. Um, becomes something that is becomes a very difficult financing challenge for for a company to how do you match that buildup of those account balances, especially since the executive is not, you know, those account balances are building up before any taxes are taken out of. So you want the money set aside to build up without any taxes taken out of. And that's why corporate-owned life insurance has become sort of one of the more prevalent, if not the most prevalent way of funding uh, non-qualified deferred comp plans. So then, Pete, with that said, so what things should plan sponsors consider for deferred compensation plan financing? Well, um, one, of the, one of the most important things that a, that a company needs to uh, attend to is... is they need to realize that unlike a 401k plan, which is sort of, you know, you know, set it up and forget it and turn it over to the administrator because the administrator will be collecting, collecting the deferrals from all the employees with payroll deductions and putting the money in and investing and giving out statements. It's a much more tricky uh, operation from a, from a, from a, on a non-qualified deferred comp plan because Yes, there's a record-keeping aspect to it, but that record-keeping aspect is all notional. The, the company needs to keep track of what the executive has deferred and what the you know, earnings on the, those notional accounts are. And it becomes a liability of the company. And it's not like in a, a 401k is neither an asset nor a liability. It's sort of just off the, uh, 
you know, out of the company's hands. Whereas a non-qualified deferred comp is a liability for the company. And therefore, they want to set aside an offsetting asset. And how you match that asset and the duration of that asset and the, and the characteristics to the liability, that's where the art and the actuarial science comes in. And that's, that's what I've been doing for the last 20 odd years. And, um, you know, I need to go to people like Marty to say, can you help me with this challenge? So then, Marty, what things should plan sponsors consider for the defined contribution plan financing? And maybe you could open that up, unpack it a little bit for our listeners. You know, Pete made a, a, a great point. Think of, It's like a 401k plan. It really is in terms of the menu and the elections that a highly compensated participant in one of these plans can make. And, and the trick is, is to give executives that same kind of look and feel of a 401k plan. And it's not easy to do. As Pete was describing, it's, it's more complicated than you think. And these corporate life insurance products have inside of them basically mutual funds. And, and so what a company can do is say, hey, as long as we're giving you, and let's just pick the S&P 500 as an option, as long as we're giving you the S&P 500 as an option to credit your deferred compensation plan balance, I've got to go find, to Pete's point, I've got to go find a vehicle. In this case, we're, we're talking about that corporate life insurance vehicle that has in it an S&P 500 index fund as one of the underlying investment options. So that back again to Pete's point, if I can mirror, if I can say, hey, I'm going to credit you perhaps the entire return on the S&P 500, I can also own an asset in the rabbi trust that also mirrors the S&P 500, which happens to be inside of a life insurance policy, which happens to be inside my rabbi trust. So when you put all those together, and that's the, some of the magic science that Pete's talking about, when you put all those together, the company has a liability promised to the executive participant that they're going to see in their non-qualified plan an S&P 500 return. And on the other side, there's going to be an asset on the balance sheet reflected through the rabbi trust and reported through to the company that pays and earns them the returns of the S&P 500. And when you can do that well, and Pete will acknowledge, not everybody does it well <laughs> and does it right. But when you do it right, it's Beautiful. It works great. And the results for everybody, participant and corporate sponsor, everybody's happy. And it, it turns out wonderfully. But Pete, as you know, it's not always done <laughs> as well as we right. would like it to be. Right. But it really is a potential, uh, you know, win-win situation, win for the company, win for the, win for the executive. And uh, I guess maybe a draw for the insurance company. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we do like selling insurance. There's no question about that. <laughs> right, right. You, you know, and then, but what's different, so let's talk about defined benefit plans now, Jim. Yeah. What's different is defined benefit plans, just in their very nature, the, the way that the benefit grows over time, and in particular, how the benefit is paid out. And by that, I mean, in the defined contribution space, 
most of the time, executives are allowed to pick a fixed period. In other words, I want my benefit paid back to me in 10 years, or I want my benefit paid back to me in 15 years. And it's done. It's, it's relatively a certain period, if you will. However, in the defined benefit space, because those defined benefit promises mirror the classic pension plan promises, the real problem comes about where the executive's benefit and to their spouse could be paid as a life annuity or a joint survivor annuity. And this brings a whole different set of problems sure. to the table. That's, that's exactly right, Marty. And, and in fact, I mean, what happens in the deferred, in the defined contribution world from, and non-qualified is typically the payouts are very much like a 401k. Lump sums are very common, you know, installment payments of five, 10, 15 years. Uh, but as you say, in the, in the defined benefit SERP world and the non-qualified, that's, um, you know, for, for life. And, um, that's particularly problematic when you're talking about um, a, you know, setting up these rabbi trusts where now, and maybe even when you have, when you have Coley in them, uh, you've got a benefit, a, a, an asset that yes, is, is, is uh, building up tax free, the cash value, but really the big cash event for those policies don't come until the executive dies many years from now. Yet mm -hmm. in the meantime, under a defined benefit SERP, you've got to keep paying, paying out the, the benefit. And so there's a, there's a kind of a duration mismatch between Coley and uh, defined benefit SERP. So and that's why Coley is less prevalent in the defined benefit SERP financing world than it is in the deferred comp world. Although you do see it and you can structure Coley portfolios to kind of get to a close, closer match. But the risk of, uh, of having, to, having to meet the, that long-term cash flow for, you know, until the executive dies is, is, is a tough one. And that's where I guess Pack Life has, a, has kind of a new solution that's, you know, I think pretty good for, for that particular um, set of challenges. You know, can, Mar Marty, maybe you can dive into that s solution a little bit, um, you know, and talk about the longevity risk issues. Yeah, Pete touched on it perfectly. That longevity risk, that mortality risk, the fact mm -hmm. that, and by the way, we're talking about highly compensated employees. Mm -hmm. They do tend to live longer. They have good health care, et cetera. And so the obligation is a very long-term obligation. What's interesting is for so many years, we've talked about annuities as being not necessarily a good solution for satisfying these non-qualified CERT payments. And, and that was for a number of reasons. Again, we get into the tax code and taxability of assets and all those kinds of things. But there's an interesting little clause, again, in one of these esoteric sections of the Internal Revenue Code that say, well, but wait, if it's an immediate obligation, in other words, if Jim, you were in my SERP plan at my company and you yeah. had just retired and I owed you a benefit and I owed you that benefit next month, the Internal Revenue Code says, hey, that's an immediate obligation. You owe Jim okay. that money next month. Okay. I can then, as a company, 
now go out and purchase an annuity contract to finance that obligation, which is completely different from if it were 20 years ago, Jim, as you had just started at the company, I couldn't necessarily go out and buy an annuity then. It wouldn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense for a lot of reasons. And so now we're in that point in time, and, and this is just the evolution of the retirement benefit landscape. So many companies are now terminating, closing, getting rid of their defined benefit plans. And so many of those executives who had earned pensions, both in the qualified plan space and in the non-qualified space, they're now owed those retirement benefits. And to Peach Point, they're long obligations. So companies now are saying, okay, wait a minute, I owe a life annuity or I owe a joint survivor annuity obligation to my executives who, by the way, are now retiring, i.e. I have an immediate need to pay those benefits. And at Pacific Life, something that we do in the qualified space all the time now, we have a group annuity contract. So what I'm trying to get at is the same solution that is now being used all the time for satisfying qualified plan obligations can in fact, and very efficiently, if structured correctly, if held in a rabbi trust, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of the same things we were talking about on the defined contribution side, a group annuity contract could be a very effective solution for financing those SERP benefits, those defined benefit, SERP benefits that we're talking about. And yet, if you go out into the environment, you talk to consultants, most of them would say, well, yeah, I guess so. And well, maybe, and, and nobody's really kind of dug into it and said, well, wait a minute, that might not be such a bad idea after all. And, and that's why we're talking about this today is we really want to open people's eyes the you know HR directors, the CFOs, the treasurers, the people who are responsible for taking care of these benefit obligations, give us a call. We got an answer for you, and we'd love to talk about using a group annuity contract to take care of those defined benefit SERP obligations. Well, Marty, that was a great breakdown, and I hope our listeners were able to gain a deeper understanding of, of the topic today. So thanks so much. And you know, I also want to really thank Pete Newworth, our guest today. Pete, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to, to speak with Marty and I. And, you know, Pete, I'd love to invite you back. W would you be willing to come back and, and do another show with us in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I, I, this was fun. And, and um, I'm, I'm glad that you guys are doing this. And um, I think I, I hope people get, a, you know, some useful information out of it. So thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful, thanks for Pete. Being here, Pete. Thanks, Pete. And Marty, thank you to you as well. I really appreciate your time as well. Jim, I love doing these shows with you. These are a lot of fun uh, and, uh, and, and it's great to do it. And thanks again, Pete. It was great having you here. And, uh, and, and I look forward to seeing more of these episodes, Jim. Good job. Well, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. And to our listeners, thanks very much for joining us on another episode of The Wave Strength. I encourage you, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to our website, prt.pacificlife.com where you can connect with our team members to answer your questions. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Wave Strength. Have a good day, everybody. This has been another episode of The Wave Strength, presented by Pacific Life. Don't forget to catch us on YouTube and make sure to subscribe. Although this podcast is presented by Pacific Life, 
The opinions and views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not necessarily reflect Pacific Life's views on any of the topics discussed. Pacific Life is a product provider. It is not a fiduciary and therefore does not give advice or make recommendations regarding insurance or investment products. Pacific Life, its affiliates, its distributors, and respective representatives do not provide any employer-sponsored qualified plan administrative services or impartial advice about investments and do not act in a fiduciary capacity for any plan. Pacific Life refers to Pacific Life Insurance Company, Newport Beach, California, and its affiliates, including Pacific Life and Annuity Company. Insurance products are issued by Pacific Life Insurance Company in all states except New York and in all states by Pacific Life and Annuity Company. Product availability and features may vary by state. Each insurance company is solely responsible for the financial obligations accruing under the products it issues. This podcast was recorded on December 18th, 2020. For federal income tax purposes, life insurance death benefits generally pay income tax-free to beneficiaries pursuant to IRC Section 101A1. In certain situations, however, life insurance death benefits may be partially or wholly taxable. Situations include, but are not limited to, the transfer of a life insurance policy for valuable consideration unless the transfer qualifies for an exception under IRC Section 101A2, i.e. the transfer for value rule, arrangements that lack an insurable interest based on state law, and an employer-owned policy unless the policy qualifies for an exception under IRC Section 101J. Pacific Life, its affiliates, their distributors, and respective representatives do not provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Any taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor or attorney. Life insurance is subject to underwriting and approval of the application and will incur monthly policy charges.